1: I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today on American Glutton, my guest is Sarah Hay. Sarah is both an accomplished actress and ballerina, and she is here to share her journey having dealt with body dysmorphia in her career. I'm excited to talk to her about how she overcame these obstacles and what she does in her daily life to continue to live a healthy life. You can find Sarah on Instagram, at Sarah Hay Official. Sarah Hay, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you so much for doing this. I, I want to be very, like, I honestly want to be careful about how we get into this simply because I know this is a touchy situation that I don't have any understanding of at all. And so I want to be respectful and know, and like, obviously if I say something, I I don't intend to say anything that's upsetting. Or if I get into a subject, you got to say like, we're not talking about that or whatever it is. But I, we're going to have a conversation about, anorexia
2: yeah well anorexia amongst a lot of other things Uh, i mean there
1: is a plethora of stuff i feel like you know honestly and i don't i feel like if i was with a dude and we were talking about anorexia it would be so comfortable because i think it's very rare for guys to have that yeah number one and number two i don't think it would upset guys to listen to guys talk about that but this subject can upset women from what i've seen very much.
2: Totally, totally. And I feel the same way about you coming from my perspective onto this podcast is your experience is like completely different than mine, yet really similar in a lot of mental ways. 100%.
1: Um,
2: but if I say anything that's, you know, uncomfortable for you, I feel the same way. Honestly. You cannot
1: offend me. We're
2: like opposites, yet very similar. Yeah,
1: I, I'm more, you know, I like, I have I don't understand all the internet stuff. T- to be honest with you I, I I am like a boomer at heart yeah not in in physical age but like i f- I relate to the boomer thing so sometimes I'll see like somebody posted something and and then people are mad because they didn't say trigger warning and I'm like I don't understand this I don't know what's yeah. happening here but I've seen that happen a couple of times on this subject so I just don't want to bum people out and I don't know about it, so I'm, like, very interested.
2: Yeah, and I think it's super important to have open discussions, um, you know, whether or not there's a trigger warning in front of it because, you know, telling my perspective is going to help somebody who's struggling from something similar and also going to broaden people's education around subjects that they may not understand and also perspectives because – what I've experienced someone else who's listening to this podcast may have never even thought of and yet find some kind of understanding and similarity in it and heal from it. So totally. I'm, I'm an open book. I'm like, let's just talk about everything that you want to talk about. Awesome. I'm so there. And I feel like I'm in my healing process far enough that I am like, just ready to speak on anything.
1: Yeah. I th- I think for me too, I, I, I It took some time of, like, having gotten to a place where I felt like, okay, I'm in now the zone of where I want to be. And then I spent some time in that zone before I was, like, even confident enough to say, like, I can have a discussion about this. I literally couldn't talk about it. Like, 10 years ago, I was probably this weight or even thinner with a little bit less muscle. And I couldn't have a conversation about it because it was all so new and fragile. And like, am I going to be able to hold on to this? And, and, you know, now I'm like, I I can, I feel comfortable talking about what I feel good about, but even what I'm insecure about still, because there's still lots of stuff like that where... uh, there's some fragility in my uh, mental processes about stuff. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm, I don't think, I mean, I don't think you just um, get to a point where the switch is completely flipped and everything from the past is completely gone. You
2: no, know? unless you have some crazy enlightening experience <laughs> where right. you're just reborn as something else. But I think when it also consumes like your whole life, when your focus is just your body and all of the things around it, it becomes so um, fragile of a subject that you can't even have a conversation because you're going to feel judged. You're going to s- repeat seeing yourself the way that you were. And it it's terrifying. Yeah. Scary combo.
1: You were and are a dancer. But when we say dancer, you were like an elite ballerina.
2: Yeah. I was like... Top-level, traveling the world, doing the whole thing, and, you know, studied at the best schools in the world. Um, I retired. Now I'm retired, so it's been about three and a half, four years since I've been on stage.
1: Right. And what? how did that start? Was that something you just, as a kid, you were like, I want to do that?
2: Yes. Yeah, it was almost like I couldn't not do it because... It was shown to me, my grandmother and my mother just absolutely adored ballet and it was shown to me and I started like mimicking it kind of ridiculously at around like one and a half where I was watching like this Russian ballet tape from like East, you know, really like hardcore Russian dancers that nobody could relate to now. Um, (laughs) And I was copying their movements so precisely that my mom was just like oh, my God, we finally got one. Right. She's going to be the star. It's going to be everything I've dreamed of. And it kind of, like, just chose me. Yeah. And I loved it so, so much.
1: And that was something that was, like, a daily practice for you.
2: Yeah. I started taking, like, movement classes when I was three. And then when I was just turning eight, I got accepted to, like, the most elite ballet school in the country, which is School of American Ballet, who... Um, they're famous for this really uh, prolific choreographer, George Balanchine, who was like... Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. super, super famous guy um, and kind of just took over American dance culture. And so I was trained in that technique.
1: And and I feel like um, my, I have a very uh, p- peripheral... Uh, idea of this guy but is is he controversial too like yeah so, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, some people are little, like <laughs> he
1: was too hard and other people are like that's what it has to be
2: yeah well there's like a lot of controversy around him not only because of the way that he changed american dance and the way that like we as ballet dancers see ballet or saw it before he was there um he like kind of fused a little bit of broadway and sexuality in a different way Um, It was like more music, like American music, styles, Gershwin and stuff like that. And then he also was famously in love with one of the dancers who was underage and very, very, very thin and kind of started this whole American movement into anorexically thin ballet dancers, which was not a thing before he came to America.
1: Was it a thing in other countries?
2: Not really. If you look back at like stars of the Russian ballet, um... You know, in the 1950s, it's like they're they're women and they're strong. They have muscle definition. This
1: is – I mean, this is the thing that I don't understand. Like, it's an incredibly hard, physically uh, difficult thing to do. Yeah. So the idea of – you know, I think about um, like marathon runners can be very lean, but they've still – they don't look sickly thin because you know and so this idea of like m- making a body sickly thin and still demanding that it perform this I- incredibly incredibly rigorous physical feat uh, I, how does that well, <laughs> i don't understand <laughs> why why is that the thing does it that's crazy
2: <laughs> someone's banging a drum
1: yeah does it does it help um facilitate anything to be that thin when doing ballet?
2: So also, like, another balancing thing is women should be bird-like, you know, uh, fragile-looking with, like, sloped shoulders and really, you know, thin arms and thin legs, and things should be, like, sinewy and ribbony, and that was, like, just a look, but it's not really functional for anybody unless you're just born that way, Mm. and... My body does not work for that art form. So, you know, the whole reason that I ended up getting as sick as I got, um, which is actually not sick compared to a lot of people that I know, um, is it was impossible for me because I am meant to be like a Marilyn Monroe. I'm meant to have boobs and an ass and curves, and, like, my body does not want to do what ballet wants me to do. So some people find it a little easier to lose weight will like I've I've seen people like portioning out things really specifically and and being kind of obsessive about eating and I've seen people who just don't eat at all and you're like you know everyone's kind of like oh is she gonna eat something you know talking about the person and then there's me who could not squeeze my body into that stereotype so I was making my own um, method of diet and exercise that I thought was healthy. And in fact, nearly killed me.
1: Right. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. So w- w- at, when was the first time you were aware of like, I uh, I need my body to be smaller. Like what was the first feel? Like, you know what I mean? What was the impetus behind that?
2: It was told to me that that was the first time that I really started to feel it. I I mean, I was teased a little bit. You'd see me as a kid and I felt like I was chubby, but if you look at me, I'm absolutely normal. I'm a normal kid. But, you know, the other girls would kind of, you know, snicker at me behind my back. Is this
1: in ballet or... Yeah. Okay.
2: I was like nine when this started happening because it's so common in the ballet world to have this discussion about bodies constantly. We're like staring in the mirror all day. We're being scrutinized about little, you know, different parts of our bodies constantly so that we all kind of look similar. And when you don't look like the other people, you start to get scrutinized. And so I was like... I think my first, like, weight conversation from a ballet teacher was when I was 14, 13 or 14.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, And I remember, like, you know, my mom went into the meeting. I wasn't invited. And so she had to give me the news that, you know, after so many years of being told I was this prodigy and this incredible talent, um, that they're not sure they're going to move me up to the next level in ballet school because of my weight. Wow. And I... Was just going through puberty. And that's such a fragile moment for everybody. Like, whether your skin breaks out or you do gain weight or you, you know, if you're the skinny kid who's got gangly legs that people make fun of, like, there's so many vulnerable situations that you're in at that age. And then to hear those words, I, may, I started to make those my identity.
0: Yeah. So the
2: teacher would say the word overweight, and I would look at myself and think, overweight. And then someone else would say, Maybe she should think about a breast reduction or maybe she should think about... And
1: this is when you're 13 or 14? That was
2: like 16. 16. That was the first time I heard that. Whoa. And that's, you know, a blessing in our culture to have big breasts. And then in this other culture, I'm getting told, cut them off. And so I started to think like, this is a problem. These body parts, like certain things are a problem. And all of a sudden it was like it honestly felt like I was wearing a coat of other people's words and it was super heavy and I just couldn't... Like the depression started to set in so strong. And you know with depression and and all of the things around um, just weight in general, it makes you want to eat. Yeah. And so I was suffering from depression from 13 and I was suffering from binge eating and starvation all at the same time just based on what people were saying about
1: me. Right. It's almost like this... um mania happens. And and somehow that energy can allow you to hold on to withholding food. And then when the depression gets too heavy, it's just like you break. And I've experienced that. Obviously, it, it, it went in the opposite direction of yours. And, and I think the depression and, and eating to comfort myself won out. But I was never really trying I was never involved in anything where it was like here here is what you have to fit it was more of an abstract just like there are normal people and you're not normal and you know this um idea of normal became so kind of nebulous that I was like well I'm never going to get that but Mm -hmm. I cannot imagine if you have like um people telling you this but but also like a thing that you're working towards every day that is almost requiring it.
2: Well, I feel like you can relate in some ways because sure. of the industry that you're in. It's like, you know, you're acting in all of these fantastic things and then you've got like the Brad Pitts of the world who, you know, look a certain way and I'm sure there's like a, a piece of you that was like, well, I well, wonder, I wonder. You I wonder. know, the,
1: the amazing thing about that is I, I had my own kind of, area yeah your niche yeah where it was like you know i'm never going to do that so i'll just do this and be happy do you know what i mean totally. like was there there I, I i'm trying to think i've seen i've been to the ballet a few times the girls all generally look the same yeah the hair is the same the makeup's the same the outfits are the same um so that that actually seems like a harder industry to be in simply because it's, like, if you're not a fucking Stepford wife over here, right, (laughs) you know? Like, at least I had my own little lane to carve.
2: Right, and I think that's why I sort of fit into – I mean, I was a really good dancer, so I fit into this category of, like, soloist – and I, cause I could look different than them if I was doing the solo, right. but if I'm in the line of girls and we're all meant to look identical, I don't really fit in. It's like a rocket being just a little too short, you know, it doesn't yeah. work. So I would, I started getting like good parts at certain moments in my career and ended up having a really fantastic solo career. But, um, yeah, it's, it's unforgiving when you're in that line of people. And
1: even with that ability to have and be the soloist and not have to exactly fit in, you're still not eating.
2: Yeah, still not eating. And also, you know... There are so many other soloists and so many other people that looked the way that I wanted to look. So I was looking at them and trying to fit into their body type. Yeah, And that's kind of the sad thing about ballet is that the uniformity kind of kills the individuality of the dancer because... Every dancer is so different. It doesn't matter if you've had the exact same technique. Like everyone has a different way of dancing to music. Everybody hears music differently. And this uniqueness is so, it's so special. And then they kind of want to kill it and make you look like everybody else when you're on that lower level. Right. But once you get out of the lower level, individuality is encouraged. Right. So I had to fit in to start somewhere. And that's where things were really, really complicated
1: does it get confusing for you at times? Like it, it becomes so unbelievably hard for me to wrap my head around everything. But like, you know, when I think about the industry you come from and like modeling and how much emphasis there is um, being put on being really, really thin. And I think that's terrible. And like, yeah. I, I don't even think it's attractive. Like, you know, you look at the really top, top models and you go, like, some of them um, who who can also do, like, Sports Illustrated or something look healthy. And and then some of them you're just like, that doesn't – that looks like a concentration camp or something. You know what I mean? <laughs>
2: no, totally. It's not womanly when it's like that. And some people are just naturally like that. Which, and,
1: and so I don't yeah. want to shit on somebody who's yeah, naturally me neither. like that. But then I go – that now we have this swing to like body positivity and acceptance. Yeah. And, I, and I go like, I, I, I think that's correct. I think the first and fun, most fundamental mm-hmm. thing is figuring out how to care for yourself. Like Absolutely. that's so desperately needed. And yet I think also like in America where fast food lobby is dominant and subsidized food and all of this, there's a, an impetus to swerve so rapidly in directions that we go into, like, everybody should be obese now. And I'm like, I don't yeah. know that that's right either. You know what I mean? Like, why do no. we have to swing so far? Why does it have to be, like, concentration camp or obese?
2: yeah. I mean, that's my, I work with a trainer and she talks about that a lot. Like, yeah, like body positivity, but it doesn't mean like I'll eat what I want and I'll do what I want around my body. Like your body is, you get one body, Yeah, you know, and if you beat it up constantly, you're not going to have that body. It's just, it's, you're going to die. You can't, you can't do that forever. You can't sustain like, I, I think it's the author, Michael Pollan, that says um, edible food-like substances in America. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're not eating food here. I know. It's really, really horrifying. And if you can't read what's on a label, I highly suggest not eating it because that's not a whole food. Yeah. It's all chemicals.
1: Yeah, the guys who talk about... Um... Sticking to the perimeter of a grocery store. Yeah. And you're like better off because the food's perishable. It's wrapped in a skin or a peel or whatever. You know, that's nothing's been done to it or very little. But then the majority (laughs) of the food is inside the aisles and it's like been so messed with that it does start to not become food anymore.
2: Yeah. And that's not really giving you any nutrition. And I think. Like one big thing about my childhood was like growing up in a culture where microwaves and everything you know is just so normalized, and we we have these lean cuisine dinners or whatever that I grew up on, and uh, the food pyramid, which is now a hoax, right. <laughs> you know, all of these. Uh, we just didn't grow up with an education around why food is important to the body, um, in my opinion, I felt like it was just, okay, this is going to make you f- this way, this is going to make that way. But I didn't understand how important my actual vessel, my actual body was. Um, and so I was eating uh, no food allergy t- tests. I was eating mostly macaroni and cheese from microwave, you know, ovens and oven pizzas.
1: And you're an athlete.
2: And I'm an athlete. Right. So no nutrition, no nutrition. Um, you know, barely drinking water, no thoughts about that at all. Cause I was on my own, you know, dancing professionally. And then, you know, occasionally maybe a salad with the pizza, but like a Caesar salad, which is mostly just lettuce, you know, and just a ton of dressing. And that was like consistently my diet until I got an allergy test when I moved to LA and I learned that I'm allergic to gluten and yeast and dairy right so everything i was eating was also making me ill yeah which gave me horrible digestive problems which i didn't have a problem with at the time because i thought well if i go to the bathroom more i'll be skinnier
1: yeah which is oh, man. insane yeah so what at the height of your ballet career like are you still doing that because because you were in an awesome television series too, Flesh and Bone. Yeah. Were you still not eating, doing that?
2: Well, that's that's kind of funny because uh, I had never seen craft services before. Yeah. Um, that was my first time acting. I was like in this ballet company in Germany. they don't have
1: craft services behind the no, scenes at the ballet. No. What are they doing? With
2: anything. They're pulling the food away from everybody. Right. Um. But I. I, you know, I auditioned for this TV show while I was dancing and I was so depressed and so, I was crying every single morning. My boyfriend literally had to, like, shove me out of the bed to go to work because I was just, like, miserable about my life and my body. And I uh, got a phone call from, like, Tarantino's producer and randomly, would you be interested to audition for a TV show? And I'm thinking, like, anything to escape the misery that I'm in right now, let's just do it, see what happens flew to New York for a network test and never auditioned or never done anything in, in acting before besides, like, I was dancing in the background of Black Swan behind Natalie Portman. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I booked it, right. uh, the lead on a TV show, and I got to filming it, and I was so beyond excited about my life change. Um, and then all of a sudden, I'm on, like, a $50 million TV show where there's just a display a food in front of me every single day with bagels and, you know, everything, tacos and all kinds of food that I hadn't seen in so long living in Germany when I was dancing. Um, and I just went nuts. I Like, in between every take, I was like, well, I'm not dancing right now. I can eat that. I'm not dancing. I'll just have a gummy bear. I'll just do this. Da, da, da. And by the end of it, they were telling me I was too fat. Really? So I couldn't, I just couldn't escape it. Yeah. They were, they put me on a
1: juice diet. The TV show? Yeah. Yes. That was a few years ago. I don't know that they're allowed to do that now, are they?
2: I don't know. But because I had started the audition process at 103 pounds, I worked my way probably up to like 112 during Mm -hmm. the show. Um, They just, for consistency, they were saying like, you're just putting on weight. The showrunner especially was saying that. um, And then they just. And I don't really care about talking about them (laughs) anymore. But um, they just kind of said, like, you got to stop. You got to stop eating. And they also said that to another girl who was one of the leads on the show. Um, And so we ended up, like, getting on juice diets together and wanting to die the whole time. Because we were shooting 14-hour days and trying to dance and, you know, first time on TV as the lead in a show. Just, like, a little bit of pressure.
1: Yeah. It It is a really hard job to diet at. They... Um, You get there in the morning And there's a truck making food And then There's craft services all day, and then they serve like a mid meal snack, which is, could be a meal. And then there's a lunch, and then there's more craft services, and then there's a mid afternoon snack. Second
2: dinner. Second
1: meal. I was like,
2: I am so for this. Second dinner at 2 a.m. Like, this is great. I I didn't think at the time, like, I'm changing my diet so drastically that I'm probably gonna put on weight. I was just like, oh my God, finally, like, they're letting me eat. (laughs) You know, it was so exciting. I
1: don't know how that system came about. I think for the grips or electricians who are, like, carrying stuff all day, they probably need to eat like that. I certainly never needed to eat like that, and it was not good for me. But I can't imagine doing that and being told at 112 pounds that you have to lose weight. That's wild.
2: Yeah. And I've gained, like, since then, I've gained probably, like, 15 pounds. Yeah. Which is, it's wild because when I was that weight, I thought I was heavy. And now I look at myself and I know how lucky I am and how, like, average my body type is for a woman and how many people wish they could look like me. And I spent my whole life saying, I wish I wasn't me.
1: Is it it, that transition, was that a hard transition to make? And and what what did you do exactly to make that transition?
2: Um, Well, therapy is one thing. Uh, I did a lot of micro dosing. Okay. <laughs> I've been doing that uh, because I have done prescription stuff for ADD and this and that. And I find that it's super toxic, but I've tried micro dosing a lot for depression and that's been super helpful. Um, you know, it's been, I feel like it's been enough time that I've stopped dancing that I can look back and I'm like, oh, I I see you, but you're not who I am anymore. We, we're different people now, and I almost have to, like, apologize to that person because I almost killed them. Yeah. You know, it's like when you talk to your, like, inner child or you talk to the younger version of yourself or you look back at pictures and you have that nostalgic feeling. I look back and I all I want to do is apologize because I was so mean to myself.
1: Yeah, I have a weird thing where when I try to um, assume my perspective from years ago, and I had to go way back, like, you yeah. know, to when I was using drugs and and really eating whatever I wanted. That's 20 years ago, or more, a little bit more. Um, I feel like I was in such a fog. There was no the majority of thoughts that I remember were just self-deprecating and mean and, and I, I hated myself. Yeah. And so when I look back, I would love to apologize to that person too, but I can't even relate, you know, because it's gotten much better. And so now when I have these self-deprecating thoughts, I'm like, what's happening? Where is that coming from? Is yeah. there some external thing that's happening right now that's causing that? Because, it, again, it doesn't turn off. It's not just gone. But it gets better.
2: Yeah. And I think they they say that it takes two weeks to change a habit or, or break a habit or try something new and acclimate it into your life. And so I actually started dating somebody who, when I would say, oh, I feel fat or I look fat, would go, um, hey, first of all, you're not fat. Second, could you be a little nicer to yourself? And I was like, what?
1: Right.
2: What do you mean nicer? I had no idea that I was being mean. I had just developed this language that I would speak to myself and I didn't see the consequences of it at all but I was actually just poisoning myself with self-hatred you know constantly and I needed someone else to point it out to me for me to actually acclimate that into my life. So similarly with like letting go of ego or you know some broader concepts like when I find myself in those moments of being really mean to myself I stop and I'm like okay I just said something really mean to myself. I'm gonna reverse that and not be mean to myself. Everything's fine. I'm so blessed. I'm so lucky. There's no reason that I should say that. And why am I saying it? It's something I've learned to say to myself. It's almost like a, a comfort. The depression is comforting. Yeah. Because you get so addicted. It's an addiction. You get used to it and it feels good. It feels nice to say, Well, I don't deserve anything and I'm ugly and nobody likes me. And I'm safe when I say that. And I can just hide here, you know, behind myself and nobody nobody needs to understand me
1: yeah if i think there's almost a, like a um you know a, a fear that i have of uh and not even just a fear but like uh there's something about releasing into i can't do whatever i'm trying to do and if I tell myself I can't do it because I suck or, or, or whatever reason I come up with to denigrate myself, then I have no more impetus to try. Right. And that is, that can be comforting because then you don't, you know, it's very depressing, but this kind of just, not euphoria, but like um, to be resigned to uselessness and be sedentary and still and even if you're just kind of cycling some mantra of negative garbage man i can get totally lost in that oh yeah don't go anywhere we'll be right back and it's a trap because if i have the thought of wanting to do something I can't ever get anything done if I'm not coming from some point of positivity, some point of like, I'm going to, like, you know, it almost has to start with what can I do? I can tie my shoes. Right. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. not the best at tying my shoes, but I can tie my shoes. Right. So I have to now build up a, a giant pyramid of things I can do and I have to look for them and, and, and just to feel like, Okay, now this really big goal that I have, now I'm going to tackle it. And if I have to take that goal apart into step one is putting shoes on, I know I can do it.
2: And what a massive goal for somebody who was at your worst probably had trouble doing that. I did. Yeah, that's terrifying. Not being able to have control over yourself and your body, is that's like a terrifying feeling. And I I feel for you in that because even when it's hard for people, you know, I have terrible joint issues because of my malnutrition from dancing. And so I have, like, joint pain all the time. And if I stand up sometimes, my knee hurts. I just think about somebody who's been in your position and not being able to stand up
1: well, it, it's, or tie it's, shoes. Well, it's even worse than that, Sarah, because, you know, part of my job was changing my clothes. You're at work. You're yeah. shooting a scene. Then you have to change clothes. Changing clothes was an effort, was mm-hmm. taxing. You know, going to a wardrobe fitting, that was like a cardiovascular workout and for me. And
2: traumatizing, I'm sure. Just,
1: yeah, moving, this doesn't fit. And you're just like taking stuff on, putting it off, up and down, sitting, standing, it squats, it's all this thing. To the point where even today, where we'll go to the store and I'll grab something and say, I like this, and my wife will say, try it on. And I have a moment of like, that's so exhausting. Oh, wow. Trying these pants on would be so exhausting. And I have to, like, shake that off and it's go. like a trigger. Yeah, no, it's not exhausting anymore. Yeah. It's actually not a physical effort now to put on pants. Like, it's easy. Stop fucking living in the past. You know, like, it's, these things catch up to me. I, I have this thing, this recurring anxiety about being late for airplanes simply because on the few times that I was late and gigantic, rushing through an airport, wow. you know, you you don't even get to experience that relief of making it in time because I'm covered in sweat. I can't breathe. My whole, The whole rest of my day has been ruined right. because of the effort. And so now it's just like I have to be early to everything. I can't rush because rushing equals exhaustion. Yeah. It equals sweating. It equals, you know, all this anxiety. But it shouldn't. No. Because I can physically rush now. You know what I mean? So separating those things, telling yourself you're fat now when you're clearly not fat. Yeah. We have to be able to um, have new perspectives and and remove the old ones.
2: Yeah. It's like shutting layers. (laughs) Yeah. It it really... uh when you run towards something that frightens you i think that's when you get the best result and so if something if you're struggling with weight or you're struggling with anorexia or you're struggling with anything in regards to the body and you find yourself going to that place of i can't do it i you know i should just give up i'm just going to like fuck it you know go towards the opposite and then you can build patterns to get out of it that's kind of what i had to do with the speaking it's like stop yourself Don't say the mean thing. Be kinder to yourself and you'll create a habit. And as we know, healthier habits are really, really hard for people who have addiction. Yeah. And I was definitely an addict and addicted to self-hatred and addicted to – I was addicted to Adderall because it was making me thin. And, you know, anything, anything that someone would give me, uh, you know, to to get me to lose weight. Right. So as soon as you kind of can separate that those are – not you, those words. Those are something that you've kind of created as a comfort in your depression. Start lifting them off of you and creating new habits. I feel like that's when I make the best change. Yeah. Just catching myself in those toxic moments, trying something different.
1: Yeah. I think you got to try to to locate them. And I think whenever making any kind of inventory list like this, it's important to keep in mind that you're going to miss some. And so you're trying to mark down here are all these areas that i'm going to watch out for and then when new ones pop up catch them be aware of that's what's happening and and just it is work it's effort it requires that you know again very easy to just go like you know if i think if somebody said like you know you can go fly like superman and i go like well no i can't and I'm not right. going to try. And this is a very comfortable feeling of knowing that I don't need to put any effort into trying that, right? right? That could be anything. It could be something that I could do. Right. And I could tell myself I can't and feel very confident and calm in not putting energy towards it. Even if I somewhere, if I searched around, I would find the idea like, no, that would be possible. You could pull that off. It would take a lot of work a lot of effort, but you could do it. So there's, you know, I think one of the other issues I've had is so many things, um, sobriety diets, hitting certain weight numbers. I wanted these things to be solutions. I wanted to be like, when I get to X pounds, I'm fixed. Right. And that doesn't happen either. Yeah. It becomes kind of like a life of work, uh, you know, a practice.
2: Right. And I think that's something in a broader concept is with everything in life. Like we don't – you don't know everything. Nobody knows everything. And so we're infinitely learning and growing. And a lot of people get like kind of settled into one way. And I think that goes along with the same thing with weight. It's like you you settle into this feeling of – shame and I won't do this and this concrete thinking and kind of controlling, um, not being embarrassed around it and not having other people talk about it. And um, the biggest word is surrender. If you can like surrender to something that makes you feel shameful, like if it's just going for a jog. That makes you feel shameful. Just surrender to the process and say, fuck it. I'm not going to care about what other people think of me. This is my body. And I'm going to take care of it and take control of myself in a different way. Not take control by hiding and shaming myself. Like there's just a, there's a broader perspective than the little controls that we hold around that stuff. And I, you know, talking, going back to what you were saying about costumes and and trying on wardrobe. um, I had similar problems which is so wild because you were having trouble with the physical of it and I was having trouble really badly mentally because in ballet they almost never make new costumes so you have costumes that someone wore 20 years ago and there's only four of them for this particular part like for Swan Lake let's say and so there's four tutus and I have to fit into one of them And if I don't fit into it, they're going to have to sew something onto it to make me fit in it. So I would go, I would be walking to the costume shop from like the the ballet studio and I would start shaking and I would start having an anxiety attack. And at the time I was just thinking, oh fuck, I don't want to try on the tutu. I don't want to do this. Oh my God, I should just quit. I should go back to New York. I hate my life. Oh my God. And I get there and these German women where where I was dancing in Germany, I didn't speak German and they're shoving me. And I'm, I have double Ds. No other ballet dancer has double Ds. They're just pulling and making uh, uh, these sounds. And I'm like, oh, my God, I, I can't do this. And so I would start crying. And then they would all be, you know, these, like, kind of proud German women who make all these tutus. They're like, what the fuck's wrong with her? <laughs>
1: right. like she's nuts. Yeah. And so
2: I was this crazy person in relationship to going to try on a tutu. And I just... It actually makes me want to cry now. Thinking about that, it's so that's something that I have not healed from. It's just the feeling of someone trying to like shove me into something that doesn't fit. Yeah. So now when I buy clothes, and I'm two sizes bigger than I was, and I go shopping, I I'm picking out sizes that are two sizes bigger, and I'm like, ah, yeah, I feel okay about this, right? This feels good. That number is a little frightening to me because I never in my, you know, my whole beginning of my life never thought I would get to that size. I thought I was always going to be the smallest size possible and try to fit into that tiny little size. But now I'm buying clothes that fit me for real and I don't feel like sausaged into them and it's so liberating. Yeah, It's so nice to not feel like, and that's, I mean, people who are, you know, heavier, trying to find clothes is, like, fucking impossible.
1: Okay, yeah, well, okay, but we can talk about that, because I've known that. When I was a child, there was one big and tall man store on Fairfax, just south of Santa Monica. And I'd go in, and it was all old men and me. And that was the only store I could shop at. There was also a Rochester big and tall in Beverly Hills, but, like... It was 10 times more expensive. So unless I was getting fitted for a suit for somebody's wedding, we didn't go there. We went to the big and tall man's shop on Fairfax. Cut to today, Sarah, you can get 5X in Target. I know. So it isn't so hard anymore. Because I think um, America's getting larger and larger. Yeah. You know, which again goes back to this thing of like, I... I I don't want people to feel shame, but at the same time, if anybody's out there with the urge to make a change in their body, I want to cheerlead for them. Yeah. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, and I think the conversation, you know, similarly to like those sizes going up in Target, the ballet world has kind of turned a, a new corner as well, which is super exciting for me um, to see like more normal weight women on stage. Do they have? It's starting that to happen. It's I, you know, I missed that kind of wave of it um, because when I was talking about this ten years ago, ballet dancers would comment on things that I said and would say things to me like, "Well, you know, you're just fat, so <laughs> you're that's why you're mad." Yeah, you're just fat, right? So of course she's saying it. Like, no, actually, like, I'm suffering from we're something. We're all anorexic, <laughs> yeah. and we're
1: pulling it off, and yeah. you're, you're failing at that.
2: And I felt super attacked, but I was also kind of like, well, fuck you. I'm going to keep talking about it. And now people are coming forward saying, oh, well, my teacher assaulted me. Or, oh, I, you know, someone told me I was fat, and then I was throwing up. For And I'm starting to hear these stories, and I'm like, finally, people are talking about this. It's such a culture of... Um, like ballet dancers are so replaceable because everybody wants it and there's only a finite amount of positions. Yeah. So if you speak up, you can get eliminated.
1: I just think like, uh, I don't see how it's conducive. I understand that if you're actually fat because i don't believe you were ever fat but if you're actually fat i could see that that could be hard to do ballet moves like a pirouette would be difficult or whatever you know some leap where your your legs go in opposite directions
2: split in the air air.
1: so that might be difficult first of all you got to be incredibly athletic but i also then go doesn't it become difficult too if you're undernourished.
2: Yeah. And you can see it in people. Like people are sluggish. Right. And then you, you can feel their heavy breathing or I I've known girls who've had to have their whole front teeth replaced from throwing up. Jesus. You know, like they you have to take time off because you fucked yourself up. Yeah. But I've seen girls who are, you know, bones sticking out um like friends of mine would bend over and the the backs of their hips would be sticking out and you don't see that usually you see the front of the hip.
1: And then also if you're malnourished and you get injured it takes a lot so longer to heal.
2: And a lot of people never come back from those injuries and you know people who realize that they're anorexic while they're doing it tend to stay in it for a really long time and then quit very abruptly mm. when they're like about to die.
1: Yeah. Pl- uh, you know, a big problem with death amongst ballerinas. Yeah, uh,
2: there's only been like two,
1: right? Ever, which well, is still too many. Yeah, so it's. Um, it seems like it would be nice to see. You know, healthy, sized people doing that, and then that there wouldn't be such a. Such a attention on. Because, I, I mean, listen, again, I get it. If, if doing those splits in the air, you got to be pretty lean, I think, to pull that off, right? Yeah. I don't think that, that being fat would be conducive to that. So if, if that's what the, the move is, then, yeah, I think... And diet would play a part in that. But if you're just going, like, I want to push it to the extreme because some guy Balanchine had it yeah. in his aesthetic was everybody women should be slight and wayfish then I go like well why do we all have to share his aesthetic you know right
2: it's like this kind of godlike figure and all the ballet directors there's you know there's hundreds of ballet companies but the ones that I've experienced the directors um, or just ballet teachers that work at those companies like they all kind of feel the same way and it's hard to understand why?
1: About women being wayfish?
2: Yeah. Okay. I think it, it's, a, it's either like a fad or something that happened where people kind of idealized Balanchine and, or idealized the, the female form being anorexic. There's a lot of like gay guys running those companies too and um, not, the first director that ever said something nice to me about my body was in Germany where I auditioned for him and he goes, you're sexy. And I was like, what? I was 20. I was like, what? Are you- I'm sexy I've, I'm have i ugly Like I, in my mind I'm going like Oh my god What is What is happening right now Because everyone else Historically had said Too big Too big Too big right. And he saw something in me That was like A little bit more like Oh I can market this By the sexy girl And I didn't really Get that at the time But the other ballet teacher That I had there Like if I got the flu And I was out Throwing up for four Or five days I'd come back in And he'd go You look good What are you doing right. Have you been dieting what have been up to? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've just been watching my weight. Yeah. Just throwing up. You know, like it's wild how they see, they're so brainwashed into that aesthetic as well that you start to kind of like, I look at a dancer on stage and I don't really care what their body looks like. I'm looking for like exceptional talent.
0: Yeah. So
2: if I ran a ballet company, I feel like it would be, I would want to see people that are fit. Like, I, you know, it is harder to do it when you're overweight. I've seen some really exceptional dancers that are overweight as well who don't get at all, they, they don't get the time of day at all in this country. Yeah. It would, it's like a shame.
1: Is there know. a country that likes them?
2: I feel like it's not necessarily a country, it's more just like. You could be a modern dancer. Right. You could do contemporary dance. You could try some other type of dance, but you'll never do this. Right. Ballet is for skinny girls, not for
1: you. Yeah.
2: And that's just gross
1: to me. Yeah, again, I I don't want to I don't want to shit on skinny people because there are some skinny people who are just skinny, you know, who aren't yeah. starving themselves to be skinny, and so I go like, okay, there's got to be a place for them. Um but it does make me feel like there's something off when the aesthetic is f- is for something, and you know maybe I just don't share the aesthetic. You know, it's not my aesthetic. I look at girls and and I'm more attracted and think that looks better when it's not that starving look. And so I want to. I would love to see ballet dancers who looked athletic. You and know.
2: sexy, because a lot of it is sexy. There's like a lot of sexual content in ballet, and it's not so, even though it's like this prehistoric art form, it's it's got a lot of risque qualities to it, and you're practically naked on stage. So, you know, I would go to performances and watch the company that I was in, and some really anorexically thin girl would come on, and an audience member next to me would go, <gasps> oh, my God, is she okay? You know, like people are like, gasping at seeing this girl while meanwhile she's getting told oh you look great you look great from the dance culture but from the outside culture it's frightening yeah like just for your average person but um I feel like when I was younger and when I was kind of taking in all of these like you're too overweight you're too overweight to do ballet like fix your body change this change that um I was also getting introduced to boys and so boys were telling me oh my god I love you And ballet was telling me, we don't like you anymore. So I was going towards the boys and kind of being like, I don't know if I like ballet anymore. These boys are making me feel really happy. And then started to base too much of my, um, you know, self-love on what other people in that category had to say. So there's this, like, big ego in that world where I could, like, I'll get the guy, I'll win the guy, I'll, you know, he'll like me because I have big boobs or this or that, and then this low self-esteem combination. So, like, society versus ballet, they're totally opposite when it comes to aesthetics. Like, you look at Kim Kardashian and all these women who are popularizing curves, like, I'm not a huge fan of them in general, but I think at least, like, they've kind of brought back, like, what...
1: Yeah, but then then we have, have like, this whole thing of girls getting implants. Oh, my God, yeah. Which, like, again, I think, I mean, I think there's probably something to, you know, just some natural animal tendency to want to be attractive to the other sex or even to your own sex, if that's your preference. But, like, you, you know, like, by the way, you look at gay dudes, like, you go to a gym where it's all gay dudes, they all look fucking great.
2: Yeah. You know? And
1: so it's like.
2: It's a culture. It's
1: a culture. Um Yeah, you drive up and down Santa Monica Boulevard, the dudes with their shirts off, it's like a lot of abs, you know? And so I think that that's a perfectly natural thing to do to want to be attractive or to attract the sex that you're interested in. Yeah. And then it gets into this weird thing where we have the media dictating what is meant to be attractive. And so we had this whole long history for – I don't know what happened. I'd love to talk to some kind of, you know, cultural anthropologist about this and (laughs) say, like, why did we go heavy into, like, ultra-thin, right? Why did fashion and and the media go – really thin is the look and now super gigantic curves is the look.
2: Yeah, the extremes are pretty wild.
1: The swings are t- radical, you know? Yeah. Like I think in my lifetime it was like Karen Carpenter and Twiggy to Jessica Rabbit, like right. literally, you know?
2: Yeah, and I think it is it has to do with muses because whatever's like culturally relevant kind of becomes popularized. So like in the 70s you get the the certain fashion and there's the fashion icon and then we're all going to look like her. And then there's this like double speak around it for normal women who aren't the the models or whatever. It's like, look like this, look like this, change this, try this, but also don't show your body, but show your body right. <laughs> and then show it. And then she's a slut. Yeah. You know, there's like a lot of double speak in, in the way that women are kind of having to deal with all of this. So it's like my body and I'll Post pictures of it if I want to. Like, no one should have to justify that. Yeah. But they're just constantly kind of asking you to be something that you're not. And then once you try to be that thing, they're shaming you for doing it. So it, to me, I've given up on trying to look like anybody, trying to emulate any specific person or like, take any specific fashion trend. I just do whatever makes me feel good about myself. And it kind of relieves some of that uh, pressure from society to conform or look like a specific type of woman, but, you know, social media is also, you know, if, if I wasn't on social media, I feel like I would love my body even more.
1: I think so, yeah. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I think it's really hard to be on social I try to not look at social media a lot. Um...
2: Predicting addicting, though. <laughs> yeah, it really
1: is. I've seen um, I, my oldest daughter's twenty five, and when she was, and I'm probably not supposed to talk about them, but they'll they'll get mad at me if, if they won't listen to this. But so when she was a teenager, you know, girls still did what I recall girls doing when I was a teenager, and what I recall my mom doing, which is plucking your eyebrows, making your yeah. eyebrows smaller. And now my <laughs> I have a, my youngest is fourteen. And now it's almost, and I've never seen her do this, but I don't, I wouldn't be shocked if she was combing your eyebrows to make them bigger mm-hmm. and they're definitely employing some kind of darkening agent to make the eyebrows darker. Oh, yeah. And I just go like, this is a radical <laughs> shift. And I think this also might come from Kim Kardashian. Yeah, I, I, I don't maybe. know. Uh, but that that isn't, and again- It comes into society going like, this is what we've determined is attractive.
2: Do it. Yeah. (laughs) Do it or die. This is what you have to
1: do. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that, that for me, the better place is to just try to separate. I'm no longer trying to be attractive. Well, I was never, I never felt like I was attractive to women. So that has never been a thing. Now it's like, what goal can I set for myself? There really isn't any desire to attract a sexual partner because I'm married. Yeah. So it's like, how can I be attractive to my wife? These are thoughts I have.
2: Or Um, to yourself.
1: Or to myself, yeah. What do I want? Like, what's a physical attribute that I I thought was never going to be possible that I could have now? But I think it's impossible to escape some kind of a base animal instinct to be aesthetically pleasing to other people.
2: Yeah. When you broaden that out, you look at other cultures where it's very, very attractive to have a huge metal plate in your mouth that makes your jaw stick out much further or, you know, rings around your neck and as many as you can get to make your neck as long as possible. Like that exists everywhere. Yeah. It's just we just so happen to be in an environment where it's so accessible via Internet um, to change so quickly everything that you want to change. But it's, I don't think it's ever going to go away. It's just, do you want to participate in being an army of everybody else or do you want to participate in your individuality? Yeah. And I find it much sexier and much more interesting when people are unique than when they're trying to be something else or trying to be someone else because most of the time, I mean, just my personal preference, if somebody's natural, I'm just like, very happy to see all of their, you know, quote, imperfections and and differences and things that make them who they are. Like, I find that attractive.
1: Totally. You know, just the idea of somebody having butt implants (laughs) to me, and I don't mind a big butt, but like the butt implants to me, it's just like, ah, you know, this, this is a bummer.
2: And again, it's like, it's a bummer. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a bum. (laughs) But it's, it's also just kind of, uh sad again I mean no hate to anybody who has a butt implant but like think about if there's a complication right and you have to get it removed and now you've stretched all the skin in your butt and like that's what I keep saying about like your body being a vessel and being like this one thing that you get if you continue to put filler in your face and you continue to put heavy things on your skin your skin stretches yeah then you get older and you have to keep pulling it up and you have to keep it's like a lot of effort and a lot of money and a lot of time for something that probably could be fixed with a lot of exercise you know if you go to the gym every single day and you do squats and you, you work on your butt your butt will grow everybody is capable of building muscle
1: you know yeah, i don't know that it grows quite to not the that proportion that. <laughs> that people are tr- doing not now, not kim yeah, kardashian's totally. butt yeah. but
2: like you can alter your appearance naturally. Yeah. It just takes work. That's like a very quick fix kind of thing. And I I don't know. It just feels like it would take so much more effort to keep that up Yeah. than to just work on your natural self.
1: But this is the other crazy thing that I've had to realize is the amount of work it actually took to stay as big as I was. Like I imagine yeah. the amount of work to... The amount of effort put in to avoid food and to not eat food and to throw up if that was part of it and to do these things, it's actually more than it takes. It's just kind of changing habits, like you talked about. You know, once the habits are different, it's no more work to eat in a way that's conducive to the size you want to be.
2: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And also, it's so, it becomes such a self. Uh, identification, like that diet, that, you know, needing, needing to stay a specific weight became my identity. Yeah. So, you know, whatever would work, I would continue doing that. But the effects of what I were, what I was doing to myself were destroying my insides. So, you know, wake up, have a tiny little piece of toast or something, and then I go and I dance eight hours, and I drink one glass of water in eight hours, sweating my ass off, dancing, dancing, go home, binge eat, you know, smoke some weed or something, like anything to just relax, relieve myself, and then that sort of addictive pattern of just like, I need to eat chips before bed, like I need, I need this food before bed. It was like, it was actually exhausting in yeah. a way, you know, and I was so tired during the day because I wasn't eating, So I was in a bad mood. People, you know, I had problems with irritability and kind of like attitude because I was fucking hungry and angry, (laughs) you know? Yeah, Yeah, it really affected my mood. And now that I've kind of stepped away from that pattern, I cannot believe that I was ever doing it. You know, I went to the doctor. When I got here, I I go to this integrative doctor doctor. his name's Dr. Sadegi.
1: I know him. He was on my show. Oh, really? Yeah, I, had, I did an episode with him. He's awesome.
2: Oh, God, he's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, by
1: the way, I went into it with a little bit of like this guy. Is it he, a quack. Is, <laughs> uh, yeah, I was I was a little bit worried about that. And then I loved him so much. <laughs> I actually was like, I wish I had an issue that I could go see him because I, I I loved him.
2: Yeah, he's he was a life changer for me because- you know, not every person goes and gets an extensive blood panel to try to figure out why they feel ill. They just live ill because that's kind of what's normalized in our cultures. Like I've got aches and pains and you watch a TV commercial for a hundred different drugs that are, you know, everything's just kind of thrown at you with quick fixes. And his was like, all right, let's look at your blood and figure out, you know, what's actually going on here. And he was, um, right before I went to see him, I went to a chiropractor and they did that muscle test where they, like, push on your arms. And my left arm kept falling down completely. And he was writing things down and looked concerned. And I was like, "What? what is that? And he goes, well, something's wrong with your nutrition. Uh, this is a chiropractor telling me this. And I was like, yeah, fuck you. What do you know about my nutrition? Right. Like, I'm fine. And he's like, I would just be careful. I feel like you're probably going to gain about five pounds a year if you don't stop doing whatever you're doing and also you're gonna die <laughs> and I was like fuck this guy fuck this practice how dare he say that I'm gonna die and you know I was so distraught and, and then I got to Dr. Sadegi through um a friend and who's now my boyfriend <laughs> and uh Dr. Sadegi looked at my blood work and he was like y- you're gonna die. not so bluntly, but he was like, whatever's been going on is killing you. My cholesterol was like a collective 79, like so low. And my blood was inflamed, which is like precursors to cancer, all kinds of uh, precancerous blood work. And my hormones were out of whack completely infertile. you know, hearing all of that was like a punch in the face. And I think like anyone who's going through these weight things, when you go to the doctor, it's like, it's terrifying. Yeah. You don't want them to tell you what's happening because you know you're going to have to change. And that is something that, you know, you're training yourself not to deal with. Right. So when you do take the leap and you go to the doctor and you hear those things, it's like, it feels like your life is over. Um, but having a doctor like that, that gives you a protocol of what to do and how to change it is so relieving. You know, and we went through all the vitamin deficiencies. You know, I was coming up, my blood work was coming up in ways that I never thought I could actually be that ill. Like yeah. I, I really didn't think so. And I had um like dormant diseases that were actually coming out and I had thyroid dysregulation and I I would never know if I didn't go try a doctor, but You know, after years of working with him, I went back to see him. It was like the first time I went back to see him was six months later. And he looked at my chart and he was like, oh, my God, you are the best case I've ever had. Wow. Like you snapped out of it. You're healthy. Yeah. After six months of seeing a doctor like that. So it is possible. It's not impossible. Like you feel like you're at your lowest. And if you, you, you go and you try something like going to a doctor, it's frightening. But once you do what they say, and you try really hard, you can actually make improvements. And I was completely shocked to find that I had normal cholesterol that I was fertile. I was like, all my hormones were back in balance. And I was not gaining weight anymore because I had started to kind of bloat up when I stopped dancing. Yeah. It kind of capped at 30 pounds. It, it's amazing. I
1: And, okay, I want to ask you about the 30 pounds. Were you concerned with that when that was happening? Like, is this... Because, like, now when... I've been l- losing weight for a long time. When I gain weight, I it freaks me out. Yeah. Was it... Was that a hard thing for you to wrap your head around or did you have a number or were you just going like i'm going to be like what was it
2: it was uh, i think uh kind of a blessing that ballet was the reason that i was ill yeah and i hate that because i wanted to, I, I loved ballet so much um but that was the reasoning around all of the weight stuff so when i stopped dancing and i started putting on a little weight i you know i met a, my boyfriend and i started to feel okay with it you know and he was accepting of it and though I don't look at all like I did then um I I was able to kind of be free about it so not not as much in that kind of like I still feel sometimes when I look in the mirror I'm like oh man like I've changed my body's really different and my friends around me, like I, have my one of my best friends here, she's 36, and she'll say, oh, God, I feel so this. I feel that. And I'm like, stop saying that.
1: Right. Because
2: you don't understand. <laughs> like, you don't understand what I've been through, and you can't say that in front of me. And I, I don't say it like that, but I say, like, let's be nicer to ourselves. Let's yeah. not do that. Yeah. You know, you're gorgeous. You should just be happy and grateful for what you have. And I try to, like, teach that because I know that I could so easily, and in my darkest hours, when I do really dislike myself, I could say, and I'm fat, you know? Right. So I'm trying to just just reprogram, yeah. change whatever wiring is going on in there and just have a whole new perspective on who I am as a non-dancer because my whole identity has been the ballerina. I was introduced on the show as a ballerina. Yeah. So I, I am Sarah and not necessarily... Just a ballerina. Yeah, 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 you know? yeah, totally. Just like I'm not just my body.
1: Yeah, I've I've talked to some people who are like um, very rah-rah, I'm tough, and I excel with adversity. Yeah. Like I need somebody to say, fuck you, you can't do it, so that I <laughs> can then do it. And I go like, that's cool, okay. I, I can fully understand where you're coming from. I personally respond better to positive reinforcement and positive criticism. And like, and I just, I hope that's you know, for, for the kids out there who were like you and like me, who were told at a young age that they were fat or overweight and it was crippling Yeah, that there could be some alternative that we could discover or encourage parents to, rather than say, you're fat, I'm going to restrict your food, try to get them to go outside or, you know, and I say this having kids and knowing that it can be really exhausting and you can, you can go down the list of, of what you try. And then at the end of the day, throw your hands up and go, nothing's working. And I understand that. I just, uh, I just also think like getting a person to the point where they hate themselves doesn't help.
2: No, and it's interesting you say that because when I got here I was nominated for a Golden Globe and I was like at the highlight of my life and then I had kind of like a breakdown because I wasn't ready for that moment. Yeah. And so I just decided like as far as acting I'm going to just do things that make me feel good. I'm not going to try to get on like the biggest show. I'm not going to like I slowed down deliberately to take care of myself and I started teaching kids ballet yeah and I started to see through a different lens the way I was talking like my teachers or how I wasn't talking like my teachers or how that kid was feeling when I said that specific thing and how to dance around these topics uh, that are so difficult for children when like to be honest the ballet school that I was teaching at the Russian teacher was telling kids they had bread face
1: oh jeez.
2: and I was like I can't work here yeah I can't do this but instead of, like, running from it, I decided to try to incite some change in it. And I started to just adopt this, like, positive dance language where it's not like you're doing it wrong. I was encouraging them to make mistakes and encouraging them to, like, you never are allowed to fall down in ballet. Right. Fall down. Because if you risk and you do, like, a big move and you fall down, like, you'll know you have to pull it back a little bit. But you will have done this incredible thing. Yeah. So you know, you don't have to just be wrong, 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 wrong and mean. And, you know, I've had teachers say things to me, like asking me if I'm slow, because I can't pick up choreography, but I was actually having a really hard day, you know, and or saying that uh, you just you're too big or this or that, or um, I was a big girl, too. I understand what you're going through.
1: Right? What?
2: You know, like, I wasn't even thinking about it. And now it's all I'm thinking about. So the way that I approach kids and even adults, like I teach here in LA on Sundays and I teach women in their like eighties. Oh wow. So I'm doing like a whole, um, positive outlook to ballet where you can look however you want. It's for yourself. It's not for anyone else. And if it makes you happy to move like that, just do it, Yeah. you know? And of course, if they're children, I'm going to help facilitate the right technique and the right lines and the right things to make them succeed. But I'm not going to just have a little favorite that I always use in the classroom. I'm I'm using every single kid in the room so that everybody feels accepted no matter what level they're on. Because I see so many kids that are like, you know, they're so down on themselves. Or kind of I get to relive my trauma when my 15-year-old student comes up to me and says, Oh, like this teacher said I was overweight and this other teacher said I was overweight and I don't know if I want to do this anymore and I'm unhappy and I'm like, um, maybe you should take a couple weeks off. Yeah. Instead of like, you have to do it. You have to, you know, they would just push us. So it's, there's just such a a nuanced kind of way to approach it and the same with working out. Like if you're just... If you want that, if you want that hard ass trainer, great. But I don't think that everybody needs that. That's
1: what. Yeah, I, I just think I think it can work. Like the drill sergeant can work for some people. It doesn't work
2: for me. It gives the, me anxiety. Me
1: too. Like I don't need a guy yelling at me. I go into the gym. I know what I'm going to do. I do it. I don't need anybody to tell me exactly. what
2: to do. Exactly. Yeah. Um,
1: and not to knock people, you know, this is like some people have a bondage fetish and it's like, hey, that's cool awesome. for you. Yeah, good Do what for makes you, you happy. <laughs> I'm not into it, uh, but I'm not <laughs> shitting on what you're into. Um, I, I I think that, that for parents, it becomes this weird thing. You know, I wanted so desperately not to ever talk to my kids about food and have it be this like thing where... they could eat what they wanted to eat and we would provide healthy food for them. And then I got a kid with type one diabetes and it became this thing of like, well, sorry, dude, you have to talk to her about food, about carbohydrates, any carbohydrates she eats. We have to figure out how much insulin she needs. You know, this is like, and, and, and putting it in those terms, I even go, Any parent could rationalize their overweight kid in these terms and go, no, this kid is doing something harmful. This is going to lead to their death. I want to step in as the responsible person and say something. And I go, I understand. And I I don't know that I have a no, you should do this answer. You know what I mean? Because it becomes really complicated.
0: Yeah.
1: But I I do think that I respond better to positive criticism and and so I'm rooting for more parents to do that and for more kids to experience that, you know what I mean? Because I think you do have cases like you and I who had some negative criticism and then it fucking haunted us.
2: Yeah, it sticks with you and it might like, it's a quick fix thing again. It's like, take the time. If you're going to have kids take the time to nurture them in a way where they feel body positive or they, you you know, don't use words fat and harmful things that will create tension in a child. You know, take the time. If you're willing to take the time to have a child, have those really conscious conversations with them and be gentle about things because everything, you know, in those stages of life, we are absorbing everything. We're learning how to talk. We're mimicking our parents. We're everything they're doing. And similarly with you know, my mother, who I love, I love you, mom. Um, <laughs> she would lament about how she looks, yeah, a lot, and still does. And I see her, and I think, I hope I look like that when I'm her age. And she's in her 70s; she looks fantastic, and she's still in that talk. And my sister's in that talk too. Of I, you know, I weighed this much in college; I want to weigh that, and that's super common among um, mothers of, of women my age group who have just been in that like boomer. Mindset of I have to look like this or else a man won't want me or this or that. And if we were able to have those conversations when I was young and, you know, say to her, like, hey, you're not fat. And she could say to me, well, the teacher said you're fat, but you're not fat. Right. You know, like if we had had more healthy discussion around it, I think we both would have healed from it. It's just like, how close are you willing to get with your children? How vulnerable are you willing to go with them to create, you know, a a better mindset for them when they're in such formative years. Yeah.
1: And, and, and then if the kids are really young and it's like, they're going to have no way to process this at all. The parents are the ones providing food for the most part. I think kids probably eat at school too. I don't know. I don't actually know how, how food at school works. So I'm other than that, for the most, the majority of the food is being provided by the parents And it's like, you know, if the food that is making the kid fat is not in the house or accessible to the kid, you know, like if a kid cuts himself with a knife, is it the little kid's fault? You know, at some point the kid's got to be responsible for themselves. But like a three-year-old, why is the three-year-old playing with a knife? Why is the knife there? Right. You don't have to yell at the kid and tell him not to play with knives. Or spank him or do something like that. Just get the fucking knife out of there.
2: Or also teach them what the knife is. Right. I have a friend who has a two-year-old that uses a real steak knife and doesn't cut himself. Because they've shown, they've let him pick him up and pick it up and kind of test and understand what it is.
1: Yeah, I remember so little in P.E., that was about like how protein works, e. you know? makes
2: me like shiver,
1: right? <laughs> For me, PE was like, go walk around the field, you know, what okay. I mean? you're not going to play sports, go walk. And it, but there was no, I remember hearing about the food pyramid, but not like, Here's what a carbohydrate does. You know, it can be like rocket fuel or it turns into sugar and it stores here. And yeah, like, none of that. I didn't hear any of that. And Just like, like
2: this is what it is. You eat this and this and this, and that's a good diet. Yeah. But what is it doing for you?
1: How physically educated are we getting in school?
2: Not at all. You know, <laughs> what
1: is this? I know how to run around a track. Like, that's crap.
2: Also, like, what they were feeding us in school, back I don't know what they do now, um, you know, because I don't have a kid, but I feel like, you know, I was trying to be really thin even at those ages in, in school, and I was um, getting fed mozzarella sticks at lunch right. and no option for anything healthy. It's Pizza Friday and mozzarella sticks and lasagna and, like, all carbohydrates, which breaks down into sugar, which makes kids hyper, which causes me not to focus, and... I had terrible ADHD, so I'm sitting there like drumming away during class, you know, having a freak out all day and not absorbing any information because I wasn't getting any nutrition or anything that offered me any help in that department. Yeah, But it's wild to think that kids are eating garbage and then trying to focus. Yeah, That to me is like a total, it's just a failure. It's counterintuitive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Sarah Hay, thank (laughs) you so much. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure.
1: Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. And now for the Q&A. Joseph has a question for you. Hi, Joseph. Hey, Ethan. I'm 24 years old and I've always been the skinny guy. So my physical goals are not about losing weight. I want to add muscle, but I wonder if my body can even add
0: muscle. I go to the gym and I lift weights, but I just don't see much change. Should I be supplementing my diet with some protein shakes?
1: Sure, Joseph. I think, I think, um, Dr. Mike Isretel has a a great book on hypertrophy, which hypertrophy means increasing the size of your muscles. And, uh, So there's some multiple things you can do. First of all, yes, please eat more. Um, Make sure you're getting enough protein. Protein is key. Carbohydrates are really good to fuel your workouts so that your muscles have as much energy as they need to... um, For you to do as much damage as you need to do to them so that they can, in healing themselves, grow larger... Mm -hmm. Um, And then progressive overload, there's this principle of progressive overload, which is really, really uh, a good thing to understand if you want to make your muscles larger, which is you want to increase the volume of total effort you're putting into your workout. So the the three ways to do that are uh, reps, sets, and weights. So if you take what would be the total volume based on how many reps, how many sets and how much weight and you increase some part of that over the course of time and then because you cannot just infinitely increase, right? If you if people were able to just infinitely increase, then everybody who worked out would be super strong. Increase basically over the course of some weeks to the point where you're working out to failure. But you don't start out working out at failure because if you're working out at failure every day, you're going to not be able to do it anymore. So over the course of some time and you get to failure and then you allow your body to recuperate from that, the stress that you've put on the muscles Mm -hmm. over a short period of time while staying active. You don't have to be sedentary. And then you repeat that cycle. That's really the kind of... And you're eating enough. That's kind of the key to building muscle. Those are the keys to building muscle. You can look all of this up online. It's all free. Um, the principles of progressive overload. And if you want to buy a great book on it, Mike Isertel wrote a book on hypertrophy, which means making your muscles larger.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I was literally about to ask you, where can we find this for him? But yeah. Okay, great.
1: Yeah. Love it. That's, that's my answer. Um, can everybody build muscle? there are there could be structural um anomalies within a human body that would limit their ability to put on muscle barring that yes everybody should be able to but i don't know like if you have to get like some blood work done or see a doctor then do you got to do that but if if you're a very healthy guy who's just thin you should be able to put on muscle
0: love it great if you have a question that you'd like answered on this podcast, please email it to us at AmericanGlutton.net.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.